0: I want to touch on like a handful of supplements and a handful of um medicines, drugs that perhaps people could yeah, not take. We can't advise that, but consider. And so I wanted to run through. First of all, you mentioned previously about um uh, methionine. And I've seen some studies where restriction of that possibly can extend lifespan. But if you're eating a typical like high protein diet, there's going to be elevated levels of that particular amino acid. Can you offset that with taking like TMG glycine, like are there things you can do to try and mitigate that?
1: So, what you're sort of getting at here is your methionine cycle of the body. So, methionine is very important in that it creates SAM, and uh, SAM is effectively our metal, our one of our primary metal donors in the body, and so methylation. And deacetylation are probably the two main things that you want to be concerned with when it comes to your genetics and your your genes. So methylation effectively turns on and off genes depending on where those methyl groups are attached. And then deacetylation effectively takes acetyl groups away from a histone, which is effectively like a big bunch of DNA, and makes it less accessible. So these sort of proteins are protecting your your chromatin and your DNA. So when you, when you look at the methionine cycle, uh, TMG, trimethylglycine, or betaine, as it's also known, is of itself a, um, a donor which recycles your homocysteine back to methionine. So one of the things that you can look at in your blood work if you want to see how well your methionine cycle is operating your body is checking your homocysteine level in your blood work. And that will show you effectively how well are you recycling homocysteine back to methionine and methionine over to SAM and then SAM back to homocysteine. And at different points, there's different um, substrates that will leave. So the homocysteine can go off and get involved in your glutathione synthesis. Um, It can also effectively be recycled back to methionine through your folate cycle, so this is sort of where your folate intake becomes important alongside b12 because it effectively pushes your homocysteine back to methionine in order to produce more sam okay and what what we're starting to see is that your sam level um and i said it at the start of the podcast your sam Sort of dictates how well mTOR is going to work. So it's one thing that we don't even consider. We all think that leucine, mTOR activation, where really there's quite a lot of things that dictate mTOR activation. So methionine and SAM is one, uh, glycogen levels is another one. And then obviously mechanical stress. So mechanical stress, when we're doing heavy resistance training, activates mTOR. So it's not just a matter of looking at, you know, dietary restriction. As the main driver of mTOR, it is probably one of the key aspects because of the availability of the nutrients, the leucine, the methionine. But there's other things that control mTOR and how mTOR creates proteins. That I think, from a recycling perspective, yes, you want to make sure that you have optimal folate and B12 levels in order to push that homocysteine back to methionine. But the, the overall availability of how methionine enters into the cycle to begin with is from dietary protein ingestion. So, <clears throat> again, it goes back to then caloric restriction or time restricted mm-hmm. feeding to reduce that methionine impact, as opposed to speeding up like TMG or betaine is more so to help push homocysteine back to methionine. Now, that is an important aspect towards longevity because homocysteine has quite a lot of negative impacts to our body um, in that it can make our um, endothelial cells more um, permeable or dysfunctional. and um, It can reduce rates of uh, nitric oxide within our body. So homocysteine would be a marker towards cardiovascular disease. And so we do want to ensure that the levels of homocysteine are kept. I think in blood work, you want it to be less than I think it's micrograms per liter, but the value would be somewhere between eight to ten on your blood work would be the ideal range for homocysteine, because we do see it correlate with cardiovascular disease. So betaine, TMG, vitamin B twelve, so like methylcobalamin and um, tetrahydrofolate as your folate source, those would be very important for pushing that homocysteine back to methionine to reduce obviously the impact that homocysteine is going to have on disease progression.
0: Awesome. The One other thing you keep mentioning as well is um, senescent cells. And so in my trying to go down the rabbit hole of senescent cells and the problematic, the problems that they could possibly cause, um, a couple of different supplements caught my eye. So one being quercetin, the other one being phycetin. Um, The bioavailability of both seems to be low. So I was looking at liposomal delivery systems. How effective are they in clearing out senescent cells? And if they are effective, how often would you want to do that? Is there any benefit to actually having some senescent cells in your body? Uh,
1: No, I don't think we... So the thing with senescent cells is that they don't apoptose, so they don't kill themselves. So they don't reach a point where where they serve any purpose to your body. And if anything, what what they effectively do is they... They secrete these signaling molecules, like I said, um, that affect all cells around them. So we it's basically an anti-apoptotic pathway, what these senescent cells do.
0: Right.
1: And so like like the example um with gray hairs, and I always laughed, like I got one gray hair in my beard, and then all of a sudden I have a patch of gray hairs, and then even on the side of my head, I've got a patch of gray hairs where it's like one starts and then that senescent cell starts affecting all the ones around it. Um, and that's sort of, you know, where, where people are on about reversing gray hairs. Reversing gray hairs either comes from getting the body to recognize those senescent cells that aren't making melanin anymore and removing them, or it's it's a copper deficiency or you have elevated hydrogen peroxide free radicals and that's effectively bleaching that melanin right. cell so when, when it comes to senescence we we effectively have two ways either the cell has reached its hay flick limit so it can't divide anymore so i guess we haven't even talked about like your telomeres which are sort of the protective caps at the end at the end of your dna uh, i did talk about the telomere effect book but effectively the nobel prize was won i think it was in uh, mid-2000s where they discovered that our our DNA is effectively protected, our chromosomes that contain our genes and our DNA are effectively capped with these two very protective, um, I guess, protein, you could call it, protein, peptides, peptide chain. And every time that chromosome is uh, accessed and we have DNA accessed and our genes accessed, they do. The, telomeres the peptides effectively shorten so we have small amounts of the peptides eaten away at the, the protective caps and then we get to a point where the the telomere has completely shortened so that cap effectively is fully reduced and you're left with basically a dna strand so now the body seeing that this chromosome is no longer protected and it signals off to, to the body that this cell can no longer effectively divide properly because the, the genetics inside are a compromise. So effectively, it, it halts either, halts, um, I guess, cellular replication. So the cell becomes senescent and the body just doesn't deal with it and lets it live. Or you have effectively, the telomere is... Um, I guess, acutely shortened from chronic stress. So again, the environment reactive oxygen species and effectively that cell has become senescent in a very um, shorter amount of time compared to natural aging. But again, it's still the same pathway that that senescent cell now is dysfunctional to the body. So once a cell is senescent, it's useless. So whether that is from from replicative aging or whether it's from environmental insults. Basically, once once one senescent cell forms, like I said, it affects the ones around it. And then over time, if a bunch of cells become senescent, especially within an organ, you're now disrupting the function of that organ. So again, if you get senescent cells in your liver and the cells, the hepatocytes around that senescent cell start again propagating you're going to end up with patches of your liver that are completely dysfunctional so again you end up with uh, potential issues towards your cholesterol um, towards your bile acid synthesis your digestion and all these things so it sort of snowballs and effectively what you want your body to do is recognize there's a senescent cell either tell it to kill itself through the activation of certain genes that are within the senescent cell Uh, So those would be your apoptotic genes. So you want the the cell to understand, okay, it's time for me to leave the body. Or you want your sort of natural killer cells of your immune system, which can seek out dysfunctional cells, which are effectively what protect us from uh, cancer and tumor genesis that as soon as a cell becomes dysfunctional or is sort of out of blueprint to the rest of the body that these non-killer cells, basically natural killer cells kill off, and non-viable cells to the body um, <clears throat> but if we can effectively then tell the body that this senescent cell serves no function then yes we we effectively want to remove those cells from the body so with, with the use of these supplements like facetin uh, quercetin resveratrol they're they're really all going back to again that polyphenol class mm. and so polyphenols serve humans uh, to a a huge purpose as being first and foremost antioxidants and free radical scavengers so again the sort of buzzword of oxidative stress comes in and that oxidative stress is basically the process whereby you have an accumulation of reactive species in higher amounts over what your body's naturally capable of producing to Uh, sequester or remove those reactive oxygen species so these free radicals mainly would be hydrogen peroxide uh, superoxide or um, nitric oxide so they're all again reactive oxygen species so they have an oxygen anion with a negative charge that's looking for uh, electrons to balance itself to effectively donate these electrons away and so antioxidants serve the purpose of either being electron donors or electron acceptors, whether they're they're able to stabilize the charge on hydrogen peroxide or superoxide or whatever, stabilize the charge and so it's neutralized so it can't react with your cells. The main part of your body that generates these reactive oxygen species are your mitochondria. So -hmm. when our mitochondria, which are effectively the energy powerhouses of our cells, when they're undergoing glycolysis, fatty acid oxidation, they produce these reactive oxygen species as a byproduct to cellular metabolism. But our body then produces um, antioxidants like vitamin C, glutathione, um, uh, catalase, there's uh, superoxide dismutase, there's all these different antioxidants our body creates endogenously to suppress these free radicals. When our production of those free radicals, uh, I guess those antioxidants slows down as we age, that's when, again, diet and supplementation becomes very important because we're effectively providing the body with a source of these antioxidants to help, uh, I guess, shift the balance again. The oxidative stress means that you're making more free radicals than you're, you're reducing or eliminating. So that's where, again, when we look at, uh, longevity or longitudinal studies, especially with the Mediterranean diet, where resveratrol, whether it's from uh wine or uh fruits and vegetables, plays a big role towards longevity in that that sort of Mediterranean environment because they're effectively giving their body a high intake of this antioxidant that's protecting uh the cells from being damaged. Because effectively, when your mitochondria makes a free radical it doesn't discriminate. So it'll effectively start just attacking anything in its vicinity. And to be honest, attacking is probably a very harsh way of describing it. It's it's a byproduct that's been made by your mitochondria that doesn't know what to do other than stabilize itself. And so it's going to stabilize itself by latching onto a structure that can give it that stability. And that's sort of where, again, when we generate reactive oxygen species, we can oxidize our... LDL cholesterol to create oxidized LDL and that oxidized LDL then is very unstable and so our immune system responds and removes it and forms plaques so we start to see why keeping oxidative stress low is very important not only for to protect our cells from being damaged but to prevent you know um heart and heart disease mainly but also again to Potentially offset if you have that oxidative stress happening within your brain, those reactive oxygen species are going to start attacking your myelin sheath, your nerves, and so you start to see, you know, cognitive deficits and even motor deficits start to develop because of that increased reactive oxygen species. So there's two sort of sides to um, the theory of aging and the theory of longevity at one point they thought it was like the the free radical theory of aging. So sort of like we age when we get to a point where we're making tons of these free radicals and the body's not able to keep up. Mm. But really what was sort of proposed in the last two or three years was the mitochondrial theory of aging in that as we get older, our mitochondria are not being supported. So we're not producing enough antioxidants So the mitochondria are becoming dysfunctional. The mitochondria themselves are generating high levels of um, reactive oxygen species, which are going to damage our cells around them. But also we're going to end up with senescent cells that have mitochondria within them. So again, we we want to have the process of mitophagy, which is effectively autophagy. So the, the removal of these dysfunctional mitochondria. And that's where we see stuff like resveratrol, facetin, uh, glutathione, intravenous glutathione being a, a sort of big um, longevity supplement or sort of longevity pathway because, again, we're giving the body one of the really key antioxidants that the, the whole body uses to suppress free radicals. And so obviously as we age again, our production of glutathione will slow down that again is controlled by your your dietary intake cysteine sources so again it comes back to <laughs> your your sort of management of your your dietary intake supporting your antioxidant system in the body and it, you know it, there's so many layers to this that if you did mm. chlor if you don't caloric restriction okay yes you're slowing everything down but then you're not ingesting any of these sort of antioxidants that would be coming in through the diet so then does that bring in a layer of, if you're doing caloric restriction, should you be taking these supplements during this sort of extended fasting period so that you're providing these antioxidants to combat what the body's doing? In my opinion, I think it is a, a really good strategy. You know, if you're taking vitamin C, uh, glutathione, turkman, especially in the liposomal format, mm. um, you're effectively, Enhancing the bioavailability, but you're actually delivering that ingredient inside the cells. Um, and that that was, again, coming back to formulation, that was, you know, we were, with Supplement Needs, we were one of sort of first UK supplement companies to bring liposomals into the UK market. And that was because, again, from my own research and my own longevity when I was bodybuilding that, I understood, you know, the the benefits to liposomal technology for curculean for resveratrol, for glutathione. And that, that was effectively why we, we formulated the liposomal range was, again, to give a more accessible option to bodybuilders on higher bioavailable ingredients. Um, like resveratrol, bioavailability orally is about 5%. Mm. Um, so when you're taking 100 milligrams of resveratrol, you're, you're really seeing, you know, max 5, 10 milligrams enter systemic circulation. So at least with liposomes, the liposome protects the ingredient for delivery
0: inside your cells before it's burst open. And so, because time is pressing on, of course, (laughs) um, another podcast I'd love to do with you is mitochondrial dysfunction, and then perhaps we could talk about things that could support or aid mitochondrial dysfunction. So, uh, I know metformin has an impact on how mitochondria functions. Um, Going into, like, NMN and NAD, like various different supplement protocols that could boost those to ultimately help um, would be great. So uh, of all the questions I've still got to go, I would like to touch on a couple of things. So one being, because you mentioned it with telomeres um, one way that I've really thought I've heard many, many times really good description of telomeres is to think of them as like, uh, you know, the little caps at the end of your shoelaces, like holding your shoelaces together. Like I think that's a really good one. Um, But is there any way, and I'll confess that I've done this. So I've taken and I'm going to butcher how I say any medical or drug, right? So epitalon or epitalon. I've taken that in various protocols every, probably consistently every year for the last five years, Uh, where I'll do a high dosing period for a period of like 10 to 20 days. What's your thoughts on the mechanism of how that works and whether or not it is something people should consider? So
1: you've touched on... Peptides in of themselves, depending on the peptide length, um, can rarely interact with your DNA. But okay. we know that we know that short di, tri, and uh, probably tetrapeptides can interact with our DNA. And so, epitalon is a peptide <clears throat> that's made up of four amino acids, <clears throat> and it's effectively able to regulate the function of. How our, our sort of our brain works, so how the the pineal gland, and more so how our what we'd call mesenchymal stem cells. So these are sort of stem cells that are within your your skeleton or within, I guess, um, the liver, um, neurons, etc. <clears throat> Epitalon is able to upregulate how basically that the, the the telomeres are being protected from the body. So it's, it's effectively increasing the amount of the enzyme telomerase. Mm-hmm. So, like we sort of discussed, your telomeres are, are that sort of the way you said it. it's like your shoelace. If you draw your shoelace out in a straight line, you have two sort of protective caps to stop the shoelace from fraying. Effectively, that's what happens when you remove the, the telomere off the chromosome. You're left with sort of frayed ends and when your body sees those frayed ends then it's time to throw the cell out. Epitalon will increase your body's expression of telomerase so we do know that our body does have an ability to increase the telomere length so we can start adding base pairs we can start adding um onto the peptide chain of the telomere itself to lengthen it again and um, it's not a very fast process, but we can do it enough that we can actually try and slow down the telomere shortening, as to so speak, which effectively plays into longevity. So when you are taking epitalon um, as a peptide, you're you're effectively uh, mimicking a peptide that already exists in the body, and that, that's sort of what I was trying to say to start. It mimics a peptide that controls the functions of your brain and your your effectively your stem cell proliferation but again it increases the amount of telomerase that you make so as a longevity aspect there are protocols that you'll see online where you you can take a sort of um, blasted period of epitalon to increase the telomerase and uh, you know in tandem add more base pairs back onto those telomeres that could be chronically shortened So you are effectively buying yourself back more time on that cellular division uh, because, again, you haven't reached – the Hayflick limit is effectively 60 cell divisions, but that's effectively a number when the telomere has fully shortened. So you're you're actually extending the amount of times that cell can effectively replicate, so producing an, an effective cell of itself. So I guess you know, even in terms of like a longevity aspect, if you could forever increase the Hayflick limit of your your functioning cells, you are thereby offsetting the risk of aging, so that that particular organ will never fail because it's continuously generating new cells. And again, that's sort of where not even with stem cells, but um, I guess oncogenic cells. If you are able to take the the mechanistic Um, approach of how a cancer cell divides and being able to apply that to your normal naturally functioning cells you effectively have a cell that's able to replicate indefinitely so that's sort of where we see the dysfunction of cancer offering some insight into our our longevity and that if we can take that that forever replicative ability where it's able to produce normal proteins and normal cellular structures in tandem you effectively live forever so yeah epitalon very useful peptides very accessible um obviously in terms of uh, risks you are introducing an exogenous peptide that is interacting directly with your dna now whether or not that can have a a negative consequence i'm completely unsure or unfamiliar so i can't really comment there but it does have you do see a lot of your popular sort of biohacking um, influencers speak openly about Epitalon as being a a, um, a longevity biohack that they implement, you know, at least once a year.
0: I try and so when I've done it in the past as well, and just through, I know they're working completely different pathways and mechanisms of action, but at times of doing it, I will take um, growth hormone at the same time. And my logic there being that, hopefully that's creating some further enhancements of telomerase's ability to repair the telomeres that's my yeah, <laughs> ridiculous I, 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 thing.
1: I, I I don't know the exact mechanism of of epitalon's um, epitalon's basically mimic an which is what your body makes normally but as you can mm. imagine our body's ability to stop our telomeres from chronically shortening is sort of a, an inevitable process where we're all going to end up at that point point. Um, and sure. again it can fall into our bodies um, i guess we're, we run into an issue where our body's not making as much epitalin as the body's actually requiring and so again the cells that are producing epitalin are slowly becoming dysfunctional of themselves as we age but definitely there There is probably some logic to utilizing growth hormone even from a longevity aspect, but more so I, I guess that the issue with growth hormone is that we do know that that does reduce lifespan be, uh, as an inherent factor of it being uh diabetogenic, so again, mm. you're sort of causing beta cell dysfunction as a consequence of it causing. A loss of insulin sensitivity and rising blood glucose levels. So it sort of comes back to then: is, is IGF one probably the more preferred um, method of doing what growth hormone does without having the negative consequences that growth hormone has in terms of your your insulin sensitivity? Because we do know that IGF one, when we reduce IGF one levels in the body we don't see an increase in lifespan so we know that the, the negative correlation is directly to growth hormone of itself as opposed mm. to igf1 but the other side is igf1 makes all cells proliferate so if you do have oncogenic cells if you have cancer cells anywhere present in your body and you have high circulating levels of igf1 you can be sure that those oncogenic cells are being stimulated to grow further, and again, they're starting to invade space on other cells around them that can lead to more dysfunction. So it, it is. It's really, you know, there's a, a double-edged side to <laughs> any of these protocols that we we yeah. we we all personally are are probably experimenting with until we we have really, I guess, future proof on how everything combines as an overall mechanism.
0: Mm with uh if you're taking growth hormone as that being one of the the causes then could you offset that by like metformin berberine Like, yeah um
1: you you potentially with with metformin you do see an offset so obviously growth hormone very lipolytic liberates fatty acids uh the cells so again opens fatty acids uh, out of adipose cells Uh, but as a consequence that rise in fatty acids can cause other organs then to become dysfunctional so you start to see obviously a buildup of fatty acids potentially affecting the the pancreas and so we start to see oxidative stress develop in the pancreas Mm -hmm. metformin then effectively acts on the liver To make us more sensitive to insulin helps, um, I guess, preserve the liver's sensitivity to glucose, but also has a secondary aspect in that it it does change levels at the the gut. So we start to see expression of a particular bacteria within our gut that effectively lowers oxidative stress, lowers our ability for um, elevated blood glucose levels. And affect the the decrease in blood glucose levels is what causes the tandem reduction in oxidative stress. So metformin alongside growth hormone, yeah, would be would be a useful way to to target one aspect of that that diabetogenicity. So you're raising your diabetic risk. Um, but probably more so
0: go for it. And, yeah. I was, and I was saying, presumably, like with rising levels of Cholesterol with a fat, fatty acid oxidation, like you'd have to throw statin in there as well. Perhaps.
1: Yeah. You, you, so you end up, you do see, uh, now th- this hasn't happened in any sort of human model that I've seen, but definitely in rats where they've chronically given growth hormone, you start to induce diabetes because of there's this high influx of um, fatty acids, I guess, fluxing into the liver and the pancreas itself from creating dysfunction. Um and so you know you you start to see again like we we talked about earlier with even with the the liver if your then gallbladder is not producing enough um bile or you're not effectively helping that bile flow through the bile looks causing cholestasis, you're affecting the liver then. And then the liver is playing off to your sort of glucose metabolism of itself and your fatty acid metabolism as well and so it's just a knock-on effect that even with, with like growth hormone as a a longevity tool there are risks to it that it's probably more so one of these interventions that you'd do on a periodic basis so it wouldn't be something that you'd want to be taken like chronically elevated every single day sure. um, and that, that's probably more so where for my opinion with even growth hormone use from a longevity perspective even mirrored to bodybuilding and a muscle building discussion, would be to use it on potentially training days only and using it before bed. Mm-hmm. So you're you're effectively mimicking, um, or or I guess aiding your body's own endogenous production of growth hormone during deep sleep. And then because growth hormone takes about four hours to peak following an injection, you're getting that secondary peak of growth hormone in the the later half of your your sleep period and then the sort of exogenous injection um, level is back to your sort of normal baseline after 12 hours so that sort of sleep period you've got your deep sleep circadian production of growth hormone from the pineal gland and then you've got effectively the, the injection starting to peak four hours into sleep so you've got sort of two peaks that you're riding on And using it on training days, you're effectively helping the body to recover during that sleep period following training when you want IGF-1 picking up while the body's trying to repair itself during sleep. And then you're you're not using it to the extent that you're going to cause uh, chronically elevated blood glucose levels from taking it every single day. And you're not upsetting your body's own, um, I guess, somatostatin cycles so that you're not suppressing your body's ability to produce growth hormone during the day in response to meals or in response to training or in response to elevations in insulin, but you are selectively helping raise that level during sleep for your overall recovery, which of itself plays into muscle building and longevity.
0: And with that in mind, would you, by taking it just on particular days of the week, does that have any effect on the days you don't take it? So would I still have the same growth hormone output? the following night, if I didn't take it naturally, or would that be suppressed offset the fact that I had more the day before? Um, and presumably we're talking about not super physiological levels. We're talking about like a replacement, like one IU or something like that.
1: So uh, dose wise, I'd still be aiming towards like on average, an average male growth hormone is prescribed on like a milligram per kilogram basis. But okay. if, we, if we take that approach on average, a uh, 70 to 80 kilo male makes about three to four IUs of growth hormone per night. So if oh, we wow. sort of err if we err on the side of caution, three IUs being sort of the lowest, if we implement three IUs before bed in sort of a replacement dose perspective, you're not interfering to the same extent uh as if you were doing, you know, one IU multiple times per day or two IUs multiple times per day. Because effectively, as soon as our growth hormone level within our blood plasma rises, you have a negative feedback mechanism, which is somatostatin, which effectively says, right, stop, stop secreting the pituitary, stop secreting um, uh, growth hormone. Yeah. So if, if you take it on your training days only, effectively because of the 12 hours sort of wash out then with the half-life, take before bed it peaks four hours into sleep and by the time you wake up the next morning it's sort of cleared from the system you're back to your normal somatostatin cycle of producing growth hormone and somatostatin in in sort of feedback to it and again how we produce that from the pituitary response to meals and insulin so you're not really going to have a huge effect on the say you took growth hormone on a training day on a monday and then tuesday was a rest day so that night you didn't take it you're not sort of feeding on to Tuesday night. You should be back to your normal circadian production from your own pituitary gland. And you're, you're sort of, this is where the multiple dosing of growth hormone, even sort of protocols where people are using, you know, two, I use a growth hormone every, you know, six hours up to bedtime is really having a detrimental effect on their own natural production. Now they probably understand this and then they're accepting that their own natural production of growth hormone is gonna be blunted. Mm-hmm. But if you are effectively putting exogenous growth hormone into the system every few hours, you're gonna see a peak in somatostatin. And so you want to even understand if you're doing two IUs in the morning, two IUs before training and two IUs before bed, that the two IUs from the morning time is gonna peak you know four or five hours after the injection if you're doing a sub-q it can be a little bit quicker with intramuscular um but once that peak plasma level is achieved from the growth hormone you're effectively producing your peak somatostatin levels, so that the, the brain can't produce anymore so you're then relying on you know a few hours later you're doing your next two IU's use to pick plasma levels of gh up again so it's it, it's again it's like double-edged you're, you're using something <laughs> to elevate your growth hormone levels throughout the day that potentially you could be doing anyway naturally but mm. the other side was that growth hormone accounts for 70 to 80 percent of your igf1 production from your liver so having elevated growth hormone levels throughout the day, where you're putting two ius in continuously is going to yield higher igf1 which Again, the context of recovery is going to help with uh, cellular rebuilding processes and and obviously helping um, strengthen tissues that might be damaged from training. So you're also then increasing, obviously, you're you're decreasing your longevity because you're Mm. increasing the amount of growth hormone that's present in the body, which, again, brings that diabetogenic risk also with it. So, you know, all these strategies, there's... Just pros and cons that you start yeah. to see that. Again, it comes down to the person accepting the risk of what they're they're willing to do with these strategies.
0: With that level of growth hormone as well, if you're doing it in that protocol you, you kind of described, would you potentially see any down regulation in your body's ability to convert T4 to T3 or any thyroid disruption? Or, so, or do you think so, that at that level it would be fine?
1: It's very hard to say, but we do know that uh, GH plays into the thyroid axis, and uh, it increases the conversion of T4 to T3. Now, whether whether or not that will present as, um, I will not even say subclinical hypothyroidism It could lead into uh, lower levels of T4 within the body. But again, mm-hmm. your your T4 pool is a direct correlation, almost, of what you're ingesting in terms of your diet. So We're going back then to iodine, selenium, and and some other sort of trace metals in ensuring that you are able to maintain T4 synthesis within the thyroid itself. So the the increased uh, turnover of thyroid hormone definitely is one of the sort of metabolic consequences of elevated growth hormone. So you do start to see, obviously, improved metabolism because you have higher levels of free T3 hormone. Um, and it's sort of again where we see not a level of bro science but you, you often see guys saying "Oh, if you're going to use growth hormone chronically and in sort of super physiological dosing regimens that we see in bodybuilding that you should be taking thyroxine alongside yeah. it <clears throat> and that, that sort of stems from this published research on that effect on increased T3 conversion but if we don't see any detriment to t4 synthesis and that's all controlled by nutrition and then the t4 really can be tyrotoxic. we can put too much t4 into the body Hmm. and again we're we're making more t4 accessible for t3 turnover again which has other implications when we're hyperthyroid so it's it's um it's definitely it's it's an interesting it's an interesting compound from a longevity and a muscle building perspective and we do know obviously yeah. then from the muscle building side of things that the improvement we see in skeletal muscle mass significantly improves when we combine anabolic steroids with growth hormone versus growth hormone by itself so sure. there is obviously again a synergism to the nitrogen retention being able to play into igf1 uh, receptor activation to cause more protein proliferation protein synthesis um but yeah it's uh it's it's one of those ones that you're you're playing with a double-edged sword again with the, the yeah. gh and igf1
0: so i think we answered probably two percent of the questions i had <laughs> so <laughs> but uh, so the the other podcast off the top of my head i've got mitochondrial dysfunction i've got um everything to do with the brain and Going into that, uh, also fasting memetics, exercise mimetics, um, other pharmacology things we could do to perhaps support a bodybuilding lifestyle. And so I need to book you up for the next month. <laughs> but, but in the means, in the meantime, if anyone wants to get hold of you, what's the best way for them to contact you? And also... Do you have a code for supplement needs as well? Because we'll put that I, in the description.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So probably the easiest way is to just follow me on Instagram. That's where I tend to put all my, my energy too. So my Instagram is Dean, S-T-M, D-E-A-N-S-T-M. And I have the supplement needs Instagram, um, which is at supplement underscore needs. The website's supplement and My discount code is Dr. Dean, and that will get you 10% off the entire uh website
0: awesome i use someone else's i'm going to use yours from now (laughs) (laughs) i know i know so many people uh like in the u.s and here in dubai that get supplement needs this most probably the most popular one is the cb stack like i've been using that for i don't know as long as i can remember
1: and and that's that again comes back to the sort of discussion short discussion maybe even extending the podcast any further but That is basically a really rich polyphenol and antioxidant supplement. Uh, It has the classical stuff like citrus bergamot that people are familiar with helping their HDL, but my old crux to uh, cardiovascular disease risk reduction is through, you know, that lowering reactive oxygen species, protecting your LDL from being damaged. Same way protecting ourselves from aging, we're protecting against those free radicals. So the heart stack, CV stack is is probably my my favorite of them all. Uh, someone asked me recently, like, name my three supplements, if I could only take three. And it was basically multivitamin, mineral pro, our chewable omega pro, and CV stack. And it was basically, you had all your micronutrients covered at one. You've got, you know, an abundance of omega trees, if you're able to take as many of the omega pros as you like. And then CV stack playing into the polyphenols, vitamin E, you know, you've got this huge powerhouse supplements that is effectively giving your body these antioxidants to protect you against aging so i'm glad to hear that
0: yeah awesome well thank you so much for your time dean i really appreciate it and i look forward to where we can catch up again thanks a million mark